It's day three of SEC Media Days in Nashville. It is a great time of year. Hopes are high, and everyone is undefeated. You know, it's been three years since Nick Saban and Alabama last finished the season undefeated. We call that a first-world problem. Nick Saban spoke to the media today. The Tide tried to get back on track again. A first-world problem. Welcome into College Football Live. I'm Matt Schick. We are just six weeks away from live college football but talking about it we'll have to do and to do that today Chris Doring Greg McElroy live from Nashville Tennessee Pete Thamel will join us in just a moment the topic du jour is the tide few programs would look at an 11 and 2 record as a down year but few programs have had Alabama success the tide failed to make the college football playoff for just the second time in the playoff era in fact they've never missed the playoff in back-to-back -back seasons. The Crimson Tide enter the season without a clear successor at quarterback for the first time since 2016. Jalen Milrow, Ty Simpson, Notre Dame transfer Tyler Buckner all competing for the starting job after Bryce Young picked first overall in the draft. Bama has a pair of new coordinators at the helm this season. Tommy Reese comes over from Notre Dame to run the O. Kevin Steele returning as D coordinator after serving in the same role at Miami. Now the drop-off hasn't been off a cliff, more so maybe a short pier. Alabama has made just two college football playoffs in the last four seasons, including a national championship after the 2020 campaign. That's really good, but it's nothing like the run they were on from 2015 to 18 when they made the CFP in all four seasons, including two titles. Their average final rank in those four seasons, number two, down to number five in the last four seasons. Here's Nick Saban on a different kind of rat poison this year. Sometimes the expectations affect players in a negative way in terms of creating some complacency, uh, which is a challenge to overcome. And then sometimes when you get a little negative rat poison, I call it, uh, it actually becomes something that creates a little hunger uh, and makes players want to prove something. Guys, how to say our culture has changed or... Um our dynasty's over with, and we just say that to a slap to the face because, like, y'all think people think that we're not out there trying to be the best. So we're going to silence it all this year, and we're going to take each season, I mean, not each season, each game, and try to understand every single day what our goal is because there's guys out there who don't think we are who we once were. Some poignant words there. Uh, Chris, we'll start with you. Look, it used to be is Alabama's world and everyone else was just living it, especially at SEC media days. Are Alabama's best days behind them? Yeah, I, I mean, I think the best days are behind them, and that's not completely due to anything that Alabama's done themselves. I, I, it was an unprecedented run of success over a short period of time with those six national championships. So the bar was set really, really high. But I also think what's impacted Alabama, obviously the SEC as a whole has gotten a lot better, but Kirby Smart being the first guy from that Nick Saban tree to take the blueprint and take advantage of it completely the way that he has in Athens has siphoned off some of the top talent that they were typically able to get. So I think in addition to Alabama maybe taking a little bit of a step back, uh, I think the, the rise of Georgia certainly has put the best days behind Alabama. Well, there's only one direction to go when you're on top of the college football world, and have they been supplanted? Obviously, people have suggested that Georgia is now the top program. It'd be hard for us to actually argue that at the moment, given the fact that they've won consecutive national championships. But 
I still believe there are great things in store for Alabama, whether it's in 23, 24. They continue to recruit at a remarkably high level. The roster is still really deep. Yes, the world has changed a little beneath Nick Saban's feet with NIL and with more guys kind of going in different places where they used to kind of have a stranglehold on all the top talent, but the development is still there and they will still have a highly competitive roster here this upcoming season. So I'd be surprised if they don't win the SEC West and then ultimately if they beat Georgia, given the fact they did so in the SEC championship game two years ago, then they could very well get back to the top of college football in no time. You know, GMAC, nobody knows what the level of expectation is for Alabama like you do we talked about that 11 and 2 record last year that could have easily been a nine win season Bryce Young single-handedly won multiple games for Alabama he's gone he's not walking back through that door as they say and even though we don't know who the quarterback's going to be next year I have questions still about the the offensive line and the receivers they just have not been up to the standard of what we've come to expect in Tuscaloosa how much of this guys too isn't just about Georgia it used to be Alabama the gap and, there, and then there's everybody else it's not just Georgia though they lose to LSU they lose to Tennessee for the first time in forever there's a they're part of a, a cluster of teams now GMAC. Well, and I think that there's reasonable understanding that last year the team kind of elevated and dipped their play based on who they were playing against and that's been the pro really the process at work Nick Saban's preached it all offseason. You play to the standard of excellence that's expected. You don't play to the scoreboard. You don't play to the opponent. And that's been the mission. You referenced the fact that they won some games late for sure. But they also lost two games in the final play of the game. It took a very bold choice by Brian Kelly to go for two in overtime. It took a last second field goal after Bama missed their own field goal there in Neyland Stadium. So I think that while, yes, they looked more human last year, it doesn't mean that collectively they're not among the best teams in college football, and it doesn't mean that they can't beat anyone that they ultimately line up against on yeah, Saturdays. I think that, that looking human is something that we certainly have not expected from Alabama, and now all of the other teams in the SEC taste a little blood in the water. You know, it's like Y.E. Yang when he was able to take down Tiger Woods. Everybody started believing that they could take down Tiger Woods. Buster Douglas knocking Mike Tyson out. We've seen it now with LSU and Tennessee, as you said. So I think a lot of the other teams in the SEC besides Georgia believe that they can beat the Tide. Look at you with your golf knowledge there, Chris Story. Very impressive diversifying the portfolio there. Uh, you mentioned super uh, being human. They're replacing someone who is superhuman. They got to replace a Heisman Trophy winning number one overall draft pick at QB. The first Bama player in modern NFL draft era to be drafted with the first overall pick. 80 touchdown passes over three seasons in Tuscaloosa. Here's Nick Saban on who will replace him. We have three guys that are competing for that position right now. Uh, all those players are getting better, and it's important for us that all those players get better. I don't think anybody has actually separated themselves yet to this point, and I don't think it's something that we're trying to rush. Uh, I used the analogy earlier you know, Grandma Saban used to bake the best cakes in the world. And I used to stand by the oven when I was a kid and say, when's this cake going to be done? When's this cake going to be done? And she said, if I don't let it go through and take it out of the oven too soon, it's going to turn to mush, so it won't be a really good cake. So I think we got to let this sort of develop. 
uh, and make sure we let the cake bake until somebody separates themselves. We're focusing on how do we develop the players that we have, and we want to develop all the players. You know, everybody wants to know who the starter is. What about the backup guy who has to go in and play, like Jalen Milrow did last year against Texas A&M, how he finished the Arkansas game? It's important that all these guys continue to develop, and everybody at that position develops into where they can play winning football. There's not a decision that needs to be made at this point in time, nor are we ready to make that decision at this time until somebody separates themselves. Uh, but expectations, we want somebody to play winning football at that position. The quarterback clearly goes from a Heisman winner to a question mark. Greg McElroy, which player is most likely to provide that answer this year? Well, I would anticipate in week one, multiple guys getting opportunities because it's a winnable game against a less than stellar opponent. But when you get to week two, the guy I think it's going to be is Ty Simpson. I, I think he's the most accurate amongst the options right now, albeit the least experienced amongst the options. I think he understands how to play within the pocket. And if you look back at the success that Tommy Reese had at Notre Dame, the quarterbacks that he used, Jack Cohn, uh, obviously Drew Pine. He also used Ian Book, guys that did have some mobility, but for the most part, they made their living from the pocket. This is going to be a downhill rushing attack, and Ty Simpson's the most accurate of the three off play action with his back to the defense. So I think he's ultimately going to be the guy, but I'd also expect to see both Buckner and Milrow on the field at some point situationally, whether it's in the red zone or in short yardage situations. Yeah, Milrow gives you something that the other two guys can't, and that's something that a defense has to prepare for. I do agree with you. They're going to find a way to work. Two guys in there, that's not necessarily – you did the great old guy voice earlier about, you know, if you don't have one quarterback or you, well, you have two quarterbacks, you don't have one, whatever it was. That is a, uh, a true statement. But I, I go back to the spring, Greg. I, I didn't get to watch the Alabama spring game live. I read on social media how terrible the quarterbacks looked. Then I popped the tape in or watched the, watched the game, and it wasn't nearly as bad as everybody talked about. So I don't think the sky is falling like the media folks would have you believe. There's a guy there, but what I think is most important is the other ten guys that have to elevate their play around them. Yeah, you mentioned I mean, Jake Coker had Derrick Henry. A.J. McCarron had Trent Richardson. I mean, they – these quote game manager types are guys that live more from the pocket had guys to help them in the backfield. This offense is going to look different. You mentioned it. And one of the reasons it's going to look different is they got new coordinators. Once again Nick Saban have to replace play callers on both sides of the ball. Tommy Reese his ninth different OC. He's never had an offensive coordinator there more than three years. That was Jim McElwain and Lane Kiffin. Kevin Steele starting his second stint as defensive coordinator after doing the job for one season back in 2007 Kirby Smart the longest tenured coordinator under Nick Saban now the head coach at Georgia which coordinator do you think Chris Doring has the toughest job ahead of him. Well I think anytime you're a defensive coordinator for Nick Saban that's a pretty tough <laughs> job uh, but obviously Kevin Steele knows what he's getting into his third stint with, with coach Saban uh, honestly. I don't know that it's a job you want to be on either side of the ball with the criticism that the fan base gives to, to coordinators under Nick Saban. It, it certainly is a, a very high bar that's set, but uh, I, I do believe that it'll be interesting to see how Tommy Reese puts his fingerprint on this offense because of how every coordinator starting with Lane Kiffin to date has been able to add to what the, the, the offense has done and how he's been able to put his own little wrinkle to uh, make it his own.
Yeah, I think it's Tommy Reese, and, and it's partly because the identity that Alabama has employed since 2016 has been quarterback-centric and making sure that they're getting a little bit more spread, a little bit more pass-happy, a little less balanced. Well, Tommy Reese is charged with bringing the focus back into the run game and the emphasis back into the line of scrimmage. So that's a pretty significant shift. When you've been so reliant on the quarterback and the quarterback's playing hero ball, now you're reverting back to a little bit more balanced attack. That's a pretty seismic adjustment for every single member of the offensive team. Now, I think it's great for the O-line. It's great for the backs. And I also think it's good for a young quarterback as well. But it's going to take some time to really work on that downhill rushing attack. But it's not something that happens overnight. We have seen Nick Saban adjust to the game and adjust with his personnel. We'll see how he does it again this year. Thanks, guys. To the Big Ten now, where former Northwestern football players are going public with their accusations of hazing. Quarterback Lloyd Yates, linebacker Simba Short, tight end Tom Carnifex, and running back Warren Miles Long are among 15 athletes who have retained civil rights attorney Ben Crump to seek damages against the school. Multiple lawsuits have been filed against Northwestern, with more likely coming since reports of hazing have emerged in other sports as well. A recap of how we got here, Northwestern launched the investigation into hazing back in January. As a result of that, the school suspended Pat Fitzgerald for two weeks on July 7th. The next day, the Daily Northwestern published a story detailing hazing allegations. And two days later, the school decided to fire Fitzgerald. The first lawsuit about hazing was filed by a former player on Tuesday. Let's welcome in ESPN's Adam Rittenberg who joins us from Chicago. Adam, you were at a news conference today as former football players and their attorneys spoke to the media. What was the overriding message? Yeah, Matt, actually two news conferences and both sets of attorneys spotlighted what they believe was a toxic culture at Northwestern Athletics of hazing, sexual abuse, racial discrimination, and just overall bad behavior, not just with the football program, but with baseball, which recently fired its head coach, softball, volleyball were also brought up, and both expect more former North Northwestern athletes to come forward. As you mentioned, we heard from four former football players. They spoke about how difficult it was to come forward and address the embarrassment that they went through and the difficulty of the hazing that they believe they experienced within the program between the years of 2013 and 2019. And I asked former Northwestern quarterback Lloyd Yates a legacy at the school, a guy who has roots that go back 100 years at Northwestern, just how widespread the hazing was with Northwestern football. I'd say it's pretty widespread. I'd say it's, it's definitely no secret in the program, you know, between the players, uh, the staff, and the coaches. And I'd say it's really a, a testament to the culture that we were um, really entrenched in as really young 17, 18-year-old men. When did you first realize there was a problem? Well, you would get hints at it on recruiting visits, um, just talking to some older guys. You know, we do overnight stays, um, but these are just stories, and, you know, you, you only know what you know. Um, but as, especially as soon as we got on campus, um, since day one, it was kind of, you know, it, it was really real at that point. How difficult was it to come forward and report, and report these things and obviously have your name attached to it as well? Well, I think in one manner it's extremely difficult um, because I know that I'm opening myself up and, and my, my brave teammates up to, to extreme criticism. But I think, you know, what really, you know, pushes us over the edge is um, the way that this has had a lasting impact on us 
um, how we were manipulated as young, um, really adolescent men. And we really don't want this to persist uh, at any school, especially at our alma mater. Why didn't you ever relay this to coaches or others in the program? Or did you and, and you didn't receive the response you wanted? Well, it's been very difficult, right? Because it was the culture uh, um, and it was something that everyone knew about, that everyone participated in one facet or another. So, you know, there was a code of silence that you just couldn't break if you wanted to fit in, you know, be respected and be um, a trusted member. Yeah, Matt Lloyd, Lloyd Yates, you could see the relief in a sense on, the, on his face, on his former teammates' faces, just that they've been able to talk about this a little bit more openly. But he also described just the difficulty of seeing the hazing activities in the program from the moment he arrived, telling himself, I'm going to avoid this. This is not something I'm going to go through. And then saying that he was overpowered by the culture that you basically could not avoid going through the running and some of the other hazing activities that he and his teammates said took place at Northwestern. Adam, we... we heard a lot of themes today and we heard that word it was widespread attorneys saying coaches knew are there any specific names being mentioned no really no names have been mentioned today Matt no names were mentioned in the executive summary of Northwestern's own hazing allegation Pat Fitzgerald's name has obviously come out as a leader of the program but very few specific details regarding who led the hazing activity who was the ringleader who encouraged it uh, you know, Lloyd Yates said he, he believes coaches were aware of it and, and, and participated in it, but when I pressed him on that, he did not reveal any names at this time. That could be coming later on, but so far this is a very generalized yeah. lawsuit against Northwestern, against its leadership. We have not heard any other names mentioned, assistant coaches, staff, or the players that allegedly were leading and encouraging this hazing activity for many, many years. See if uh, some of those specifics, uh, those specific names come out here in the days ahead. Thank you, Adam. Great work on this. Up next, some new places for old faces. Devin Leary left NC State for Kentucky. Will he find greener pastures in the bluegrass state? Plus, a pair of former Big Ten quarterbacks square off for the right to be the lead Gator. Can either of them help the program avoid its third straight losing season? As we told you moments ago, former Northwestern football players going public today with their accusations of hazing. Quarterback Lloyd Yates among 15 athletes who have retained civil rights attorney Ben Crump to seek damages against the school. Multiple lawsuits have been filed against Northwestern. There were a pair of news conferences held today. Moments ago, Dan Webb, Pat Fitzgerald's attorney, released a statement in it saying no arguments were made that would present any substantive, detailed, factual allegations, let alone evidence, about Coach Fitzgerald's conduct. The statements made by the lawyers and former student-athletes and those contained in the complaint filed by the one unnamed plaintiff still fail to cite any specific facts or evidence beyond the broad-based statements published in the July 8th article. Florida Gators taking the podium today. They went 6-7 and seven in Billy Napier's first season as head coach. Second straight losing season. Their longest 
losing streak since the Gators went uh, in 1978 1979 I should say they haven't had three straight losing seasons since the 1940s Billy Napier working on his tunnel vision one of the things we're not going to do with our team is we're not going to allow outside opinion or a created narrative to define the reality for the 2023 team you know the head ball coach the Gator legend Steve Spurrier said it best when he said this is talking season and uh, the games are coming and in the meantime this group will continue to work like it's been working you know we're in the week seven of a nine-week program it's important that we stay focused as we finish up and we transition into training camp the next five weeks will be paramount for our football team. Let's welcome in uh, Pete Thamel now. You covered a uh, Florida spring game. Uh, also uh, joining us Florida Gator former Florida Gator Chris Doring. Pete how would you assess the, the pressure that is on Billy Napier entering year two. Well there's there's pressure Matt and then there's financial pressure right and so Billy Napier obviously works at a place where they have high expectations and a demanding fan base so there's going to be an expectation for improvement but I really think at the end of the day any talk of significant pressure on Billy Napier needs to end with the fact that he has a contract where if he's fired after this year he'd be paid thirty two million dollars sixteen million of that would we have to be paid within the first month that is a lot of cabbage and I really think they need to give Billy Napier time to rebuild this program the best case for Florida going forward is that they have the number two recruiting class in 2024 it's going to take some time and going to take some patience yeah, yeah patience unfortunately is not one of the uh, virtues that Florida's fan base has a lot of and uh, I've been around this program since I was a kid growing up in Gainesville obviously playing there and then now living in Gainesville covering the team as part of the SEC network so I, I look at the the level of expectation amongst the fan base it's certainly not ever been something that that you would have thought that they would struggle to get to bowl eligibility but look at this schedule right here you start the season at Utah you finish the season at a, against a much improved Florida State team your biggest rivals Georgia Tennessee Florida State all playing better ball right now I think you can be a better team this year Pete than what they were last year and I don't think it's necessarily reflected in wins again 2024 nearly... looms ahead, large at 2024 looms large because they play 11 power fives that year. They play the full gauntlet of Miami, Florida, and Florida State. They need to rebuild in a hurry to get ready for that. Yeah, nearly 80 years since they've had three consecutive losing seasons. We'd hate to uh, hear the fans there if that happens again this year. And again, got to replace some high-level talent from a year ago. Anthony Richardson, a top five NFL draft pick, fourth overall, was up and down last year, completed fewer than 54% of his passes, but flashed that athleticism and route to throwing for 17 TDs, only five picks over the final nine games of the season, even with him at quarterback. It was a sub-500 season. Pete, you're in Gainesville this offseason. Who who'd you feel gets the nod here? Well I think Graham Mertz has started 36 games. I, th I think there's only six quarterbacks in college football who have more starts. He will be the quintessential caretaker quarterback. It, it became clear Chris and I called that spring game. Billy Napier wants to establish what he had at Louisiana which was a ball control run first offense and Graham Mertz has the experience and they're going to have to 
call the plays so that they don't expose him to much risk because he was obviously prone to interceptions at Wisconsin. But I think Mertz is the caretaker until DJ Lagway comes in 24. He's obviously one of the top recruits in high school right now. Yeah, Pete, when we were with Billy Napier back in, in April, the one thing we heard from him time and time again was how much better this offense was going to be. That's saying a lot when you lose a quarterback that goes number four overall in the NFL draft. But one of the things they're confident is is the exposure to the offense. The rest of the guys around the quarterback are going to be a lot better. They kept talking about Graham Mertz being a guy that has a high football IQ, how quickly he picked up the offense, and the fact that every single play in their playbook virtually allows the quarterback to tag it at the end to get to the right play. So it's all about distribution. I agree with you. It's going to be a run-heavy style of offense. The offensive line was much better last year than they were two years ago. And I think Florida has a trio of running backs that amongst, is amongst the best in the country. And a former Buckeye and a former Badger uh, competing for the right to be the starting quarterback with the Florida Gators. Thank you guys. More from you and more from Nashville in just a moment. Up next, with Will Levis off to the NFL, Kentucky brought in transfer Devin Leary from NC State. He may not put mayo in his coffee like Levis, but can he spin the magic bean? We'll discuss his impact. Farewell to the quarterbacks that shine the brightest on the biggest stage. To the phenoms. To the underdog. Farewell to the QBs who found a new home in the SEC and delivered in legendary fashion. Farewell to the boys who became men, embracing their role as leader, but always with a chip on their shoulder. To the quarterbacks who left an impact on the conference that will forever be remembered. Farewell. We'll see you on Sundays. Peter Burns crushing the narration. NFL Films, here we come. There will be many new faces in the SEC this year. Five quarterbacks selected in the NFL draft, most in SEC history. Two of them, Bryce Young, Anthony Richardson, picked in the top four. Will Levis taken by the Titans, 33rd overall. Devin Leary set to replace him. Here are some sounds from him and other Kentucky newcomers. Uh-huh. Sometimes it's going to be battles that you need to fight. Don't worry about making a mistake. Just play ball. Let's play ball. Hey, 0-1-3. One, two, three. Oh. Use the sideline. Stick them inside and go outside. There's that. I'm really a receiver at heart. People don't understand that. Like, watch this, though. Watch this. Hey, hey, hey. Oh. Oh. Well, I'm on the mic. Who got the best hands? Ray Davis. Thank you. Come on. We're coming off this jack starting to squeeze. We can replace them right here. It went in doubt. Hand it off. 180. We got to make sure pre-snap that that safety is tight enough to where we can throw that ball. Launch it. Yes. Good job. Great job. Let's go. Hey, let's go. Walk out to me. Walk out in three. One, two, three. Walk After a disappointing 22, Mark Stoops brought back Liam Cohen as offensive coordinator, who was OC back in 21. Devin Leary transferred in. Ray Davis replacing Chris Rodriguez Jr. as the primary running back. Back with Greg McElroy and Chris Dorn. Kentucky loses their quarterback to the NFL. They get their OC back from the NFL. Chris Doring, what's the impact on the offense this year? 
Oh, it's it's big time. I mean, I, it, what a coup to get Liam Cohen back to Lexington. Had a chance to talk to him in the offseason. He he talked about how much he loved being in Lexington, how much he loved coaching under Mark Stoops. This is a guy that came in and made an immediate impact in his first year two years ago. So getting him back is huge. And Devin Leary is an absolute win in the transfer portal. Maybe the most under-talked about quarterback of the offseason comes in and has the entire spring to acclimate to the offense, something Will Levis did have and that offense two years ago under Will Levis was really successful immediately so I expect the same thing from Devin Leary the one question I have though Matt offensive line the offensive line kept them from being a 10 win team last year they have to be better than what they were and if they are they're going to be able to take advantage of a lot of skill weapons that they have on that side of the ball and especially understanding that Devin Leary does have a little bit of a checkered past as it relates to injuries I was out all of most of last year really the second half hurt his shoulder hurt his knee a couple years ago and that is a very proud group this offensive line over the course of time they became known as the big blue wall. Well, that was just not what they were last year. Inconsistent in pass protection. They ran the ball pretty well. Yeah. They had some good moments in the run game, but they just didn't consistently protect Will Levis, and he was oftentimes running for his life. Now, the OC can help with that, and I think that's going to be big for Liam Cohen to take some of the pressure off that group with his play calling and with how he can maybe help his tackles out in protection. All right, Devin Leary, some high expectations there in Kentucky. While Kentucky is replacing its quarterback, Thankfully, in Fayetteville, Arkansas is not. K.J. Jefferson returns more than 3,300 yards of total offense, 27 total touchdowns last year. Got a pretty good teammate in the backfield in Rocket Sanders. The tandem spoke today. K.J. telling us why he came back this year. Not me being able to play in some of those games that uh, from last year because of, due to injury and then also just uh, the quarterback draft last year was kind of uh, it was kind of quarterback heavy. So just being able to come back another year to be able to get my chance, a better shot at fulfilling my dreams and changing my life and my family life forever. So just being able to just come back and give it one more shot. Yeah, I feel like our name is not on a lot of billboards, you know, but uh, like I always say, uh, the time going to come, you know, and um, we're not just worrying about each other. When it comes down to a duo, we're worrying about getting a win. And uh, I'm always worrying about myself, but worrying about the team as well. A.J. Jefferson, great last year, ranking in the top five of the SEC in total QBR, yards per attempt, touchdown to INT ratio. Rocket Sanders, just as dynamic out of the backfield, ranking in the top five in rush yards, touchdowns, and yards per rush. So you've got Rocket and a Rocket arm, Greg McElroy. Is this the best backfield in the SEC? Uh, they are. Uh, I think depending on what type of offense you might decide to run, you're either going to take Jaden Daniels or you're going to take K.J. Jefferson. So whether you take one or the other kind of depends on whether you want speed or do you want power. I kind of like power. But either way, I think when you make the case on behalf of him, I, I think he's got to grow a little bit in the passing game. Yes, they were great as far as yards per attempt. They paid, made a lot of chunk yardage plays down the field. But if he can be a little more consistent on the underneath – I think he can grow by leaps and bounds because there were times last year that the running game wasn't going great. Could he throw them out of a jam? He did so often, but not often enough to the point in which they can really threaten some of the top teams in the league. I'm very optimistic about his growth, and I love the hire of Dan Enos as far as quarterback development and the new offensive coordinator. Yeah, I'm with you, Greg. I think this is the best quarterback running back duo in the entire conference. The problem is 
is that in addition to being a great running back and carrying the football, Rocket Sanders also is the leading receiver on this team. You lose a ton of production at, at the wide receiver position. You lose Trey Knox, who moves over to South Carolina. K.J. Jefferson, he's not going to throw to himself. So who are those guys that step up? I think that's going to be one of the, the determining factors as to how far this Arkansas offense can progress this year. Well, the last time Dan Enos was there, he had a 3,000-yard passer and a 1,300-yard rusher, one of two teams to do that. He did it with a different quarterback and different running back in each of those two seasons. So we'll see if more of the same coming up here with Arkansas. Just how good will Arkansas be this coming season? They have 16 wins over the last two seasons, most in a two-year span in 10 years. How many wins? Got over-under win totals to get to. Bama and Florida alumni handicapping the Titan Gators as well. SEC Media Days, Alabama taking center stage today. It was all business in Nashville. But Nick Saban did enjoy some off-season pleasure. We learned today he went to Italy for a delayed 50th wedding anniversary trip. And then, oh, how about the VR goggles of boxing? No truth to the rumor he was fighting Kirby Smart in the, in the inside of those goggles. How about the electric slide? No signs, no signs of the Macarena. That was at a prospect's house on a recruiting visit. Whatever it takes. Perhaps he knows how this season is going to go. Time for some over-unders here with season win totals. Matt Schick, Chris Doring. And Greg McElroy. Chris, we'll start with you. Caesar Sportsbook says Alabama over under 10 and a half regular season wins. What do you got? I'm going under. I mean, uh, Bryce Young is no longer there in Tuscaloosa anymore. You do have your toughest games at home with Tennessee, Texas, and and uh, the other one against LSU in in uh, in Tuscaloosa. But I think going on the road against uh, Mississippi State, Texas A&M, and having to go to Kentucky on November 11th, Tide have not played well on the road the last couple of years. That's going to be the key to them getting to 10 wins this year if they can have more success. Yeah, I'm going to take the over. I do think the Texas game at home will be a great indicator for where the team's going to go. I expect them to pass that test, and that'll be the first sign that we really see whether or not Tommy Reese's offense is taking hold. The most difficult game, I think, on the schedule is the road trip to Texas A&M. That's a place where they obviously lost two years ago. I think A&M's got a chance to really bounce back in a big way this year. So to go on the road into a remarkably hostile environment likely at night will be a big challenge for the Tide. They had won they've won exactly 10 regular season games in two of the last four seasons. They'd won more than 10 regular season games in each of the previous eight seasons. So yes there's a big big problems going on in Alabama. All right Florida five and a half wins Greg. Excuse me let's go to Chris over or under Chris. Uh, you got you're putting me in a bad spot here Matt I got to be honest with you I'm going under the five and a half win total again I don't think that this team is going to be able to show the improvement in terms of wins because of how challenging the schedule is look at the non-conference to start and finish the season with Utah and Florida State bookending that schedule your best team in college football is your biggest rival in Georgia and then you draw LSU and Arkansas from the west it's a brutal schedule that only gets worse in 2024. There's only two guaranteed wins in McNeese and Charlotte. Uh, even the Vanderbilt game at home, Vanderbilt was a team that got them last year. And the game I hate more than any other for Florida is that road trip on November 18th to Missouri. It's going to be cold. Florida doesn't like cold. I also think they lose week one on a Thursday night against Utah. So I'm taking the under. I think five is the number for the Gators in Billy Napier's second year. All right. Going to make history. 
First since the 1940s with three consecutive losing seasons according to these guys. All right Kentucky 7.0 seven regular season wins Chris over or under. Matt, this is easy money. Get out to uh, to Vegas right now. Cash okay. that ticket. It's going way over. And yeah, I know I've been, you know, a broken record here. The the guy that uh, uh, cries wolf. But uh, I think this is going to be a much better Kentucky team than last year. The key portion of that schedule starts on October 28th. You got Tennessee at home. You go to Mississippi State. Alabama comes to Lexington, and then you finish that 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 run at South Carolina. If they can navigate that four-game stretch well, I think this team could get to nine or ten possibly I think you're looking at a real possibility you start five and zero. Oh. they should be favored in each of the first five games obviously with five and zero oh going to Georgia that's going to be difficult but you get Missouri and Tennessee at home if you can protect the home field you feel great about it I'm not going way over but I am taking the over I think eight is about right for the Wildcats this year again what Mark Stoops has done in Kentucky cannot be understated seven straight bowl game appearances they had two 10 win seasons under Mark Stoops something they did uh, in the previous what 120 130 years of the program so he has been outstanding all right let's go Arkansas here seven regular season wins Chris over or under. Matt, I know it's a cop-out, but I'm going push. All right? I think it's a seven-game season uh, that they win this year. Uh, if you had to press me, I would probably go under that. But look at the brutal road schedule that they have to play within the conference, having to go to Baton Rouge, having to go to Oxford, having to go to Tuscaloosa, and having to go to Gainesville. Uh, I just don't see them being able to exceed seven and more likely that they fall below that seven game, possibly to six or maybe even five if it doesn't go well. Yeah, I think the game that, that will ultimately determine whether they go over or under that seven is the road trip to Florida. It's not a game that you see very often. They're not familiar foes. And I also think another game that could be huge in determining whether or not they get it is if they can handle Texas A&M in the neutral site there at AT&T Stadium in Dallas-Fort Worth. They had that game on their racket last year before K.J. Jefferson fumbled into the end zone where it was returned, and it was a 14-point swing. So those are the two games I think determine it. I'm taking the under, but I really don't like that one. That would be one I'd stay away from. All right, quick uh, softball, uh, so to speak, or call it a fastball question. What would be the over-under on the number of times uh, Chris Doring would be able to hit a 90-mile-an-hour fastball if you had the under? Go collect your tickets. Here's Darinoka. Darinoka doing it at the home of the Nashville Sounds. Oh, look, he hit one. Look at him. Crack one. I, that had to go over the fence. No troubles for Darinoka. Oh, that's, that's way deep. Here's Chris Doring, a swing and a miss. Shaking off the hand. Well, he looks good in that shirt, though, doesn't he? And then swing and miss. Oh, and it's over. He didn't get a hit. Oh, there goes the shirt. There goes the shirt. He's very upset. The hug of Dari. What happened there, Chris? What happened? Well, I talked a lot leading in. Uh, I, I'm going to be honest with you, Matt. They gave me a 32-inch bat. I'm too big for a 32-inch sure. bat. The 32-inch right. bat fits Darinoka, so I was not <laughs> equipped properly. Yeah, but well, it was minus 10,000 that the shirt was going to come off, though. So <laughs> if you wanted one lock for sure, the shirt was coming off whether he hit one or not. So I'm glad that we were able to catch that ticket. Absolutely. Yeah, a good craftsman always blames his tools, Chris. 
<laughs> it got to be something. It's certainly not my eye hang coordination. At 50, it's still just as good as it was in high school baseball when I was 18. <laughs> Let's go back to the glory days, Uncle Rico. Hey, it did look like a toothpick yeah. in your hands. It did. Uh, good job out there, guys, here on College Football Live. Coming up, still ahead, some off-season drama from San Diego State. A little will they, won't they stay in the Mountain West Conference. We'll hear from the commissioner when we return on CFD Live. Mountain West Conference media days beginning today with the news that San Diego State will remain in the league. The Aztecs flirted with the Pac-12, sent a letter to the Mountain West last month asking for an extension for its impending departure before the exit fee doubled as they waited on the Pac-12. That extension never came. Here's Commissioner. We are a better league with San Diego State. We'd love to have them as long as we can. And I, our resolution, um, I felt we really landed in a good place, and we're looking forward to this season. Pete Thamel joins us now, broke the story late last night. Uh, Pete, about San Diego State remaining in the Mountain West, we all thought they were at least two feet out the door. What happened? How'd this happen? Well, I think, Matt, they thought they were two feet out the door, which is which is the problem. And for about the last month, if, if it was a relationship on Facebook, it would have been it's complicated. Uh, they told the Mountain West they intended to leave. The Mountain West legally took that as they were leaving. And there's really two reverberations from yesterday. One is San Diego State gets its $6.6 million, which had been withheld, which was part of the bylaws. So for a, for a non-Power 5 school, that is a lot of money. So that's a big deal for San Diego State. Uh, the second part is this guarantees essentially that they'll be in the Mountain West for the next two seasons. Uh, they'd have to pay $34 million to, to leave before then. So if there is some shakeup in the Pac-12, it would be difficult for San Diego State to join after the 23 season, or at least it would be expensive. It's going to be really interesting to see what happens here. You mentioned the two years thing. Like, are we going to be doing this dance again in about a year? Well, I, I, I mean, San Diego State clearly feels like it should be in a higher profile league that pays more money. Uh, their athletic director, J.D. Wicker, has been very vocal about that over the last six months publicly. And so they are going to continue to build and try to win and flirt like they have been. Uh, remember, they asked the Mountain West for more time to try to slip into this Pac-12 TV deal. And obviously, that obviously hasn't happened and it didn't work out, but they are, uh, they are on the hunt. Swiping right to anyone who'll take them in the Power Five. All right. Speak, speaking of the league that San Diego State was, uh, I guess, playing some footsie with, it's Pac-12 Media Day coming up on Friday, the one-day affair in Las Vegas, all 12 teams heading to the podium. Plenty of topics to discuss there, Pete, including, you know, this will be the last year of USC and UCLA before they leave for the Big Ten. Also a topic, the Pac-12 media rights deal, or lack thereof, Pete, what more can you tell us about where that stands? Well, the Pac-12 uh, got ahead of their media uh, day being around their lack of a media deal. So they got the story out yesterday that there will be no media deal announced. There had been some speculation. It's probably the eighth different time people have thought, assumed, or projected the Pac-12 was going to announce a media, day, uh, a media deal. So where we are right now is in the familiar Groundhog Day place. It's been a protracted, clunky process for the Pac-12 to bring a media deal home. And the reality of that depends on who you talk to. You, depend, you talk 
talk to people in the television industry, they are skeptical that the Pac-12 has a path to a lucrative deal in the neighborhood of the Big 12. People in and around the league remain optimistic. Uh, it, it's been a little bit of dark arts and a little bit of sutter fudge. But for now, uh, the Pac-12 is still in waiting mode, and, and I would think we may not know until uh, foot hits ball in September. Time to cross Sutter Fudge off the, uh, the bingo card there. All right, we know uh, Pac-12 is in a, a tenuous spot ever since USC and UCLA decided that they are out. Are there any other schools we should keep an eye on that could follow suit? Well, we've reported for the past three months that the biggest flight risk to the Pac-12 is Colorado. Uh, there has been contact with other schools. I think when a league is going to last a year of its TV deal, Matt, you'd be negligent to not check your options, right? But Colorado met privately with the Big 12 at a neutral site in early May. So they have shown and expressed the most interest and every day that goes by without a deal increases the chances of their flight risk. Uh, Deion Sanders will not be able to talk about this at Pac-12 media days. Uh, they just the school just announced that he's still recovering from his surgery and has a follow up appointment and won't be in Vegas this week. All right. Pete Tamil with the latest on all media day, all of the media days uh, going on not just SEC but also Mountain West and Pac-12. Thank you very much, Pete Thamel. Coming up, again, the next UFC event exclusively on ESPN+. Plus. Also from the O2 Arena in London, the prelims begin Saturday noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific, followed by the main card highlighted by the heavyweight main event between England's Tom Aspinall and Marcin Tibura. Coming up on College Football Live, we will put a bow on day three. Look ahead to day four of SEC Media Days, and we got a cake question to get to. We leave the best for last. Coming up on Thursday for the fourth and final day of SEC Media Days, who will be at said microphone? Oh, he's always entertaining. Lane Kiffin, head coach of Ole Miss, 10.05 a.m. Eastern time, followed by Shane Beamer, finishing the last couple of seasons with a really positive note, 11.30 a.m. Eastern. That's followed by Josh Heupel, both coaches entering year three at their respective schools. That's at 1 o'clock Eastern time. Now, today, uh, Nick Saban gave a lot of good information. You know, talked about the depth chart, talked about the quarterback race. All of that's fine, but the most important question he asked had to do with cake. Uh, favorite cake. Want to know your favorite cake since you mentioned that in your opening statement? Yeah, well, um, carrot cake, that's easy. And that's it. Uh, carrot cake, that's easy. Uh, no explanation <laughs> required. All right, Chris, what is the cake? I know we saw you with your shirt off earlier, probably not eating a lot of it. Um, but how much, what, what's the cake preference there? <laughs> I, I try to minimize uh, my cake consumption. And, and by the way, hot take, carrot cake is not even in the top 10. Wow. But I'm going to go my mom's lemon pound cake, man. It, it, she makes it for my birthday. It's absolutely fantastic. I don't go with the little the, the glaze on the top. Just the, the cake itself, so moist. It's, it's, uh, it's, it's hard for me to not to, to consume. Ugh. Lemon pound cake, bro. You can have it. That's terrible. <laughs> but I, first of all, as a lock of the year that Saban was going to have a spiced cake. <laughs> Preference because I think he was a little spicy coming into it today, so yeah. I'm not surprised with that choice. I thought he was an oatmeal cream pie guy. He is, but like that's kind of also like in the weird, you know, weird dessert variety, <laughs> I suppose. Uh, angel food cake is the best cake. 
uh, because basically you do angel food cake with a little whipped cream and you can put any fruit you want on top of it. So if I can't have carrot, which would have been my preference as well, I'll take angel food cake. I've got yellow cake with chocolate frosting on it, and I've been backed up by everyone in the crew behind the scenes. Like, yes, that was mine. You took my idea. So I, I think we, we've won that one. I'm, uh, Doring, I'm with you. You said no top ten for carrot cake. Is that because you believe, like, the frosting shouldn't carry the cake like it does? Yeah. That's actually a great point. I mean, the the supporting actor is actually better than the lead in, in that one right there. So, I, <laughs> and, and the idea that uh, I get, GMAC also tried to disguise cake by putting fruit on the top. Yeah. Vegetables are not a part of cake. We're fruit, carrot. Oh, carrot. Right. Uh, We're taking day four of SEC media days out of the oven tomorrow. See you.